Hello and welcome to the show and an episode where we talk about innovation, innovation and innovation. What a dilemma. But why do people struggle to solve this dilemma? And is there anything we can do to help? Tonight, we might just find out. But before we get started, I'm going to advertise myself and see if I can help you with your innovations. As you probably know, I'm out freelancing these days as a B2B product management consultant and coach. I want to help your company, your team, and maybe even you to get better at product management and building great products. So if you want to chat to me about what I can do for you, why not head over to onenightconsulting.com to find out more about my services and book a discovery chat. Go on, you know it makes sense. So back to innovation, and indeed some of the very fundamental arts of product management, and how it's all changed over the last 40 years. We'll talk about how we can set the stage to be truly innovative, and ask ourselves whether innovation is all just about the coolest new tech, or something else entirely. If you want to find out how you can get your creative juices flowing, stick with us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Greg Kotikia. Greg's a business leader, entrepreneur, professor and author who says his first product management job was in B2B in 1986, back when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth. Now, I'm obviously far too young to remember that, so I guess I'll just have to trust Greg Flintstone here. Greg used to sell guitars at a music store, but shockingly didn't know how to play the guitar. Luckily, his product management chops are impeccable, as he created the world's first degree in product management and has launched over 100 products. He's here tonight to talk all about innovation and change management. Hi, Greg. How are you tonight? Hi, great. Wow, that was a great introduction, Jason. <laughs> I, I, I hope my parents were listening. Uh, you know, my, uh, my father had been proud. My mother would have believed it. So I don't... <laughs> you know, I'm going for the sort of the, the Walter Isaacson type thing. You know, just like this is the thing that starts the book off. Got to get it down. But let's start at the beginning. First things first, you are the CEO of Sophion, based out there in sunny Pittsburgh. So what specific problem does Sophion solve for the world? Well, we help mitigate the risk of going from idea to commercialization. That's the value proposition. You know, there is close to $3 trillion a year spent on innovation, on R&D. And half of that, it's estimated, is wasted. 94% of executives are unhappy with their innovation efforts. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, here we are, all of us, great product managers, people loving products, new product development, launching new products, and people are miserable with our work. We got to do better <laughs> than this. So, Sophion's dedicated to that idea of saying, hey, we can have a scalable, reliable, risk mitigated process that doesn't rely on lightning on a bottle to get things out commercially successful. So, that sounds obviously really good and everyone wants to save one and a half trillion dollars right but what does it mean specifically like what does your platform specifically enable people to do to solve that problem so we have four different product offerings that cover the area of what we call innovation ops you know everybody's into devops and product ops and everything (laughs) everyone wants to operationalize it well we're focused on the trend of operationalizing innovation what does that what does that translate to well Everyone loves the idea of starting with an idea, yep. doing discovery, right? Whether you're a product manager or an innovation manager, you got to start with an, that idea. But as we all know, the idea is never sufficient, whether you're in a startup or a product manager. You got to be able to test it. So we have a product technology that helps not only categorize, capture, test all those ideas. And then, of course, 
when you end that idea management, you've got to take and match it to your strategy execution and your portfolio of products. And at some point in, in the old days, you used to call it a gated process. You've got to make decisions about continued investment in that project or process or product. So we have a platform that helps with that governance and risk mitigation and decision-making there. We have a product dedicated for product managers to know their product health within the scope of that so they know what their KPIs are. I mean, how many product managers haven't been asked, hey, how's the product going? And you kind of go, <laughs> well, wait a minute, I got to get my Word doc and my Jira backlog and all this other stuff. And all of a sudden you say, oh, okay, now I'll tell you about two days later. <laughs> so we help put all that information together and give an instant answer there. And then, you know, products are managed as projects. And we also have an innovation project tool that helps manage that. So from idea to strategy execution, portfolio management, product management and project management, that's the suite of technologies that we deliver for innovation. Oh, there you go. I'm sold. But I looked you up on G2 and it listed companies like ClickUp and Asana as some of your competitors. So is that really how you see yourself like in that sort of workflow and task management space? Or do you kind of see yourself more in the kind of notional space of things like, I don't know, product board and Gainsight and stuff like that, which are kind of more operating systems for product teams? I would say more the latter than the former, Jason. You know, particularly with some of our products that are dedicated to product managers, more in the product board, aha, that space. But, you know, there are a number of very large corporations that still today, particularly in the physical product area, that use project management tools for their agile processes. You know, they're yeah. they're using products like PlanView or Planisware or things like that. So they're not using the Asanas and Trellos and other things that, uh, or they're using Monday.com or Smartsheets to automate workflow and deal with those problems. So, you know, it's a variety of things. We really try to focus on that R&D innovation manager, product manager, and someone that is building a product. That's where we're really, whether it's incremental or disruptive or anything in between. Oh, there you go. But as mentioned in the intro, you have been in the product management game for decades. So I hope that's not making you feel too old. If it is, then it's your fault because you said it. <laughs> <laughs> but you also way back when started or you created the world's first product management degree for Carnegie Mellon University. Yep. So what's the story behind that? Because I mean, obviously, these days, there's somewhat mixed ideas about the concept of certifications. And yep. I guess degrees are the ultimate form of certification. Like, what was the story behind creating it for, for Carnegie Mellon? Like, was that something where they called you and said, hey, I've got this great idea, and you look like the guy to do it? Or was that something where you went to pitch that to them? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, it was an honor to be a part of creating and launching that program. And it's, uh, it's turned out to be a very successful program. But, you know, back, as you said, when, and when dinosaurs were on the earth, when I wanted to be a product manager, <laughs> you know, you used to say, well, people used to say, oh, you have to get your MBA. If you don't get your MBA, you couldn't do it. Yeah. You know, that's changed a lot, too. And certainly over the years, there's been great programs like 280 Group and Pragmatic Institute, I think they call it like formally Pragmatic Marketing. Yeah. Lots of great places to get a certification and, uh, and even, you know, more and more today. But there was never a degree for product manager. I remember showing up at many a trade conference. I'm sure you have too, Jason, where you show up and someone say, it's, it's not like you can get a degree in product management. <laughs> you know, or people would just say, 
you know, yeah, we, we I kind of happened to be in the right place. I was an engineer who was more business oriented and I could do a presentation and things along those lines. So what really happened is uh, at Carnegie Mellon, the computer science school leader, who was a former Googler and the uh, business school recognized that there was a need for product management and particularly from their Google experience where they didn't have enough product managers. And the, uh, the dean of the computer science school used to say, you know, when I was at Google and we hired a product manager, we used to celebrate because they were so hard to find. And, <laughs> and you know, so they, they thought of this idea and they were looking for somebody to actually take it, create it, launch it, define it. And um, it turned out to be a wonderful part of my career. I never thought I'd be in academia, let alone running a master's degree program. But I like to tell people for that portion of my career, I got to be the product manager of the product management degree. You know, it was just a blast. It was an absolute blast. So when did that come out then? And I guess also by extension, is it still out there now? Are people still kind of taking advantage of your work? They are. And it's doing quite well. I'm very proud to say that uh, CMU, Carnegie Mellon University, has done a great job with it. And uh, it started about five years ago. So maybe, maybe six years ago now, right? Time goes fast, you know, because I've been with Sofion for about uh, almost three years now. And um, I did that for a little over three years. And they get about 50, 60 students a year. It's a one-year degree program. It is a little biased to the CMU brand, CMU being a, a computer science technology school. They do look for the product manager who has an undergraduate in engineering or computer science or some kind of technology basis. I don't necessarily agree with that myself, that you know, I've worked with plenty of great product managers who have psychology degrees and history degrees or no degree at all. Yep. And they're very successful and there's no issue with that. But that's their brand and that's how, that, that's how they educate product managers in that model. And so what's really nice too is I've followed that space and now there are a number of universities there's one in Dublin, one in University of Maryland, et cetera. Uh, Cornell, NYU are now bringing out either emphasis on product management or dedicated product management degrees. So it's really nice to see the, the growth in that. And I agree with you, by the way, your comment. You, look, you don't need a degree to be a product manager. Yep. If you want to get a degree and that helps break, break into to the field and it gives you some confidence or education or cachet, that's wonderful, right? Yep. And if you want to get a certification, same thing. I know people with multiple ones. Do you need one? No. Is it great? Yeah, I, I learned a lot doing them in my day. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the work. You got to do the work. Yeah, I guess that's the thing for me as well. Like, I completely agree. It's this whole idea that by itself, this isn't going to make you anything. And it's almost that kind of same argument around, well, hey, I did a driving test. I still learned a lot about driving after I learn to drive, if that makes sense. So once I got that bit of paper that said I was allowed to drive, then yes, I started learning how to drive properly after that. And again, for me, I'm always going to be in favor of learning. However, people need to learn. And again, degree courses, maybe I'm a bit biased against them because I've dropped out twice. So, you know, it's uh, my own little cross to bear there. But I think whatever you need to do to get ahead and to build your portfolio and to build your knowledge and the kind of the background that you can give yourself to be successful but yeah, completely agree. You've got to do the work because otherwise it's just all a theoretical game, right? Yeah. And there, there's no substitute for getting in the game and getting bloody. You got to get beat up <laughs> and just 
get your, you know, get your nose punched and uh, experience the the successes and the failures and the poor judgments and the good decisions and everything in between. That's how it gets done. 100%. But is that then how you learned to be a product manager back in the old days, back in black and white, you know, before we got color TVs and stuff? Like, did you just learn through that school of hard knocks type approach? Or did you have other ways that you upskilled yourself? Because obviously, you didn't have a degree in product management available if you create the first one. No, and you're absolutely right. So I had a passion for it. I don't know what inspired me in those days, but I did do know that now I was a, an industrial engineer, as my dad called it, an imaginary engineer. And <laughs> I uh, went into sales and my mother cried for about six months. And, uh, and then I found myself saying, you know, I love selling this stuff and it's great to problem solve, but I, I find myself talking to the engineers all the time about, hey, what if we had this feature? What if we did this on the product? And of course, they'd be like, will you go off and just sell something? Isn't that your job? <laughs> and then I realized that, you know, if I like doing that, defining what the product is and how the product is messaged, well, that's a product manager, right? At least in other industries. And I thought, well, what do I got to do? So I went and got my MBA. And uh, I mean, that that was good, just general business. But yeah, I started as a product manager, believe it or not, you ready for this? In a robotics and machine vision company in the mid 1980s. That must have been amazing. <laughs> We were, <laughs> let me tell you, robotics and machine vision are tough today in terms of technology. <laughs> you know, 40 years ago, it was really, really tough. And, you know, I went from there to a, um, a mainframe system software company where my first product allowed mainframes to share disk drives. That was the big, that was the, so you could have one mainframe share a disk drive with another mainframe. That was what it's, the software allowed you to do. So. As a product manager, you you really the job though is is very different, but in some ways it hasn't changed at all. It's still I always go back to at the very highest level, a product manager defines the what, right? They are defining the what. Now you can say different levels of that. Or is the what the you know the Jira backlog, or is it the business strategy that uh, owns P and L, right? Uh, okay, you know there's all, all different stratifications, but you own the what, and uh, and and so even in those days, I owned the what, and I made so many mistakes. It was wonderful. <laughs> I screwed up more products. <laughs> it was great. It was great fun. Well, again, you've got to make the mistakes to learn how to be successful and not make them next time, right? So I guess if we just keep making mistakes, then the eventual products, I mean, you've done a 100 or so, so maybe you've already made all those mistakes, but it's just this whole kind of school of hard knocks thing again, like you've got to fail to learn. But I guess what's interesting is, and I don't know if you've worked for any companies like this, but there's a bunch of people out there that kind of work for companies where kind of one failure and they're done, right? Like that's it, they're out. There's no kind of acceptance of the fact that, organizations need to be learning organizations and all of the stuff that gets kind of trotted out from agile fundamentalists and stuff about you know testing and learning and like all of which i agree with by the way but it's yeah. kind of a hard sell when you talk to maybe some traditional thinkers and i think we'll be coming on to maybe some traditional thinkers in a minute as well but like this idea that if you don't like hit a home run every single time then you you suck and yeah. you know that's i can that's unfortunate i'm generally assuming that those companies don't really do too well in the end because they never have the chance to really make themselves properly better. You know, th there is that problem, which I agree with you, is, uh, is out there. I also find, though, that there's the other side of that problem, which is, in some ways, I was, uh, I, I, I was victimized early in my career by this, too, which is 
you have a success and then you think you know. Yep. And um, that happens. I see that in startup founders where they, you know, they, they did well and they're one and done and they want to tell everybody if you just, you know, put the tab A into slot B, just like I did, then it's going to turn out the same way and you'll make a lot. And, and there's product managers like that, which is, you know, I had this one model, this one product that was wildly successful. Yeah. And if you just do what I did, then, you know, everything will turn out glorious for you. And uh, it's so naive. <laughs> and uh, I had a wonderfully successful product early in my career that was a part of a very successful startup. And, uh, you know, at a very young age, I, I uh, thought I knew. And then I went into the wilderness like a lot of people did for a number of years. And you get humbled. And that's really where the learning begins. Yeah, I think it's interesting, actually. I've spoken to people before that kind of refer to it as this kind of Moses moment where like the founder goes to the top of the mountain to get some funding and they've managed to, you know, done all the work. They've persuaded someone to give them a bunch of money for their idea and they come back down and they think that they're untouchable now because they've got, you know, they've, they've done it and they've made it and they've got the money and they've been successful. And like, it's almost impossible to argue with them after that because they're just, they're just so consumed with their own greatness, which I think is an interesting one. And also, you can kind of get this as well. I've seen this before with kind of the halo effect where someone maybe starts a business as a subject matter expert from a, a mm. non-tech industry, like maybe they worked on the service side or something like that before. They've seen a problem. They thought, hey, I'll start a SaaS firm up because that's what all the cool kids are doing these days. They're so successful at the other thing that they kind of come into this and they kind of bring that success with them in the sense that they feel that, they're, that they know everything. Yes. Rather than that maybe they should, for example, speak to some product managers about some of this stuff because maybe they don't know everything and they could probably learn and they know loads of other stuff too, but like, there's no guarantee that being an expert in area X means that you're an expert in area Y. But I think a lot of people leave that behind and it's really interesting to watch it unfold. That's why it's difficult, I think, in an early stage, you know, where the product is the company in that yep. first phase where the CEO, the founder, whatever they are, whatever role they play, it's difficult for them to hire or have a product manager because the product manager ends up just being a gopher for them or <laughs> or, or the product manager gets end up being frustrated because, in essence, the CEO is or the CTO, whatever role they play, is the is that role as product manager. Yep. And I see in, in most cases, particularly software companies, because most start as a single product. You know, the product is the company. Is not until they graduate to two, three, four products does that idea of making sure you have strong product management come to play. Because now there's that separation between what is the company and how it needs to be managed, and what are the products. And where are they in their life cycle and the decisions that need to be made for them? So it's a difficult and it's a difficult graduation and separation that happens. Yeah, if it ever happens. But let's start talking about <laughs> <laughs> Yes, if it ever that's true too. <laughs> if it ever happens. <laughs> but let's talk about some of that change then that these companies go through as well, then, because that's really what we're talking about there. The kind of the evolution of companies going from that early stage yeah. through to being more of a scale up or whatever. And that obviously then with it does bring its own challenges. You know, we kind of talked about some of that. And part of that challenge is change and keeping on top of things. And you recently wrote a Forbes article about the need to embrace change. But I guess I could ask or point out that there's kind of change and then there's change, right? Like if we just go around telling some of these people to embrace change, isn't that just like an invitation for them to succumb to some of their basic instincts and just forget to make a strategy and just keep bouncing between ideas like pinballs because 
that's what change means to them. Like there needs to be some kind of stability too, right? Absolutely. You know, it's just like basic risk in a startup. The startup founders don't just take risks ad hoc. You know, they don't just say, <laughs> oh, and then they think through what is, you know, what was their goal? How are they going to get from A to B, B to C, whatever? And then they think about the risks associated in the decisions and they think about, well, what are the alternatives then? What will happen in terms of plan A, what's plan B, plan B, what then much plan C as we're trying to work away. So they take educated risks, educated tasks based on mitigating the risks in each step, right? And that's really important as a product manager. Yep. It's important as an innovator. It's important as a startup entrepreneur. It's important as a business leader, all those, right? We don't want to do change for change's sake, right? We have to know why we're making the change. And there is risk with change. I mean, the reason we, we resist change is not only is it habit and familiarity, but typically it works. Whatever we're doing now works. You know, the <laughs> hardest organization to get to change is the successful organization. You know, everyone uses the, you know, the, the examples of uh, whether it's Kodak film or, or, or blockbuster video rentals. I mean, these are all kind of classic examples of, you know, not wanting to change. Well, the reason they wouldn't change is because they were making money. If people knew the processes, they knew how to do things, they knew how to turn the crank. You could go in and, oh, by the way, they were making money and doing very well. So why change? Help me understand why, why should I do something that right now looks very small and insignificant? Yeah, it may be coming, but I got time and we can react to that, et cetera. And what if it never comes about, right? So you know, there is a lot of reasonable resistance to change as well. Yeah, I guess that's interesting with regards to Blockbuster and Kodak, as well as you say, kind of classic examples of this innovator's dilemma, which of course is the, the book itself talking all about tractor firms and stuff like that, because it's a bit of an older book. But it's kind of idea that actually companies that are very well run can still get outmaneuvered because the things that outmaneuver them are just so unpromising for a company of their size and they're not actually technically doing anything wrong. But it does kind of beg the question and something that from an innovation perspective I guess we really need to dig into is like how can we get or how can we if we work for one of those companies or a company that is maybe bigger more established more stable more vulnerable to these kind of speedboats are there any ways that we can actually identify which of those speedboats actually pose the biggest threat to us or is it just kind of guesswork and luck and hope I believe there is. And I believe that uh, what most companies do that are successful is they actually separate their existing organization from that new business model organization. It's not an easy thing to do, right? Because you end up with different cultures and different operating models. It's also the reason why large established companies buy early stage or, or, or smaller companies, because they take the risk, they prove out the model, they shake and bake it, and then they can acquire them versus doing it themselves with R&D. So their own R&D tends to be incremental versus disruptive, right? Yeah. So if you really feel strategically that you're threatened as a business model by something strategically happening in the marketplace, the only way to really handle that is to set up a separate division, business unit, organization off to the side allow it to operate and either learn from it 
and bring those practices back in, grow it, allow it to, to come back into the organization or allow it to operate separately. And maybe in the future, it becomes the future of the business and the existing cash cow business gets sold off, right? So there are multiple models of that. But in most cases, it is incredibly difficult within the existing cultural business model and structure and technology to do it within that successful model. Extreme, all the forces are against it. <laughs> yeah, and it's hard enough, even if you are successful and able to do that and pivot and do all of the learning that we talked about earlier. I guess so. I have seen examples of companies in the past where, for example, like you say, they've got acquired, but maybe they got acquired for technology or market share or whatever it is that they got acquired for. And the company then tried to kind of subsume them into the greater whole for some reason. And from what you just said, I'm assuming that you're going to say that that is, from an innovation standpoint, at least, quite a bad idea. It is. I think it's difficult because I think that's why you see the failure of, you know, the high rate of M&A failure is in, in part due to those different business models. They buy it for the assets, the business model, the culture and everything. And then they bring that in and they say, oh, no, we want all that good stuff, but we don't want any of the other stuff. Well, <laughs> all that other stuff is what makes that work, right? And so it's a really difficult game to play. And then you have, you know, you have generational issues too, right? The way a business today that you're going to start a SaaS cloud enterprise software business is radically different than what you would have anticipated in 2000 or or, or 2010 even. It's yeah. It's a different model, different technology, different equation to monetize it. So all the things you, all the assumptions that you validated are different for those different businesses. And people are working within those assumptions. They're going to fight each other. Oh, yeah. But you said before this, <laughs> but you said before this call that innovation is necessary to embrace change, which we kind of just talked about, and that innovation management and product management are merging. Yes. Which sounds very exciting. But how are you specifically defining innovation management? I mean, I know what the words mean, but this starts to sound like a function or a team. I think you see this, again, in the separation. I, I know most people, myself included, I've spent my entire career in, in, in the software and technology business. And so we tend to look at things a little bit different than, than folks in the physical product business, whether they're the consumer packaged goods or the chemical business or, or other businesses. But, you know, what you're seeing happening in the marketplace over the last 10, 15 years, is, as Andreessen predicted with software eating the world, is that software methodologies, Agile, like we talked about, Scrum, Safe, everything, are now made their way into the physical product world. The tools that we talked about earlier, all these wonderful software product management, and even, I mean, there isn't a company in the world that doesn't use Jira. <laughs> and what was Jira made for? Jira was made for issue tracking for software developers, right? Yeah. But it's everywhere. You know, I have customers, uh, you know, make, you're talking about trying to make tractors that are using Jira, right? So, <laughs> and, and then, and then there's the idea of what we talked about also earlier, Jason, which is product management itself. Product management as a profession has also made its way into non-traditional software digital areas. Uh, I used to work when I was at CMU with Home Depot. 400 and some product managers. Company that we have as a customer here at Sofian, Archelik, which is a major Turkish white goods manufacturer, 105 product managers, right? 
So you're seeing this merging of software and physical products. And in those older businesses and those R&D innovation businesses, they didn't have these types of functions, right? They had a traditional R&D function, right? Which, you know, was in charge of what's our next generation of cookies? What's our next generation of the chemical that we're, or the coating we're building, right? So now you're seeing that put together. And what's happening is those traditional innovation R&D people are being impacted by all this software technology process roles like product management. And that collapse is happening on a broader palette than just our world of software development or software vendors. So that's that collapse that that, uh, we're witnessing in the marketplace today. So it's become that product management is eating the world from the sounds of it, which, you know, obviously I'm fully in favor of because, you know, it means that more people can listen to this podcast. But it is an interesting one, though, because obviously product management back in the day and probably back when you started as well was very much more kind of seen as like a marketing function, right? Like it's the, they're the people that look after, as you say, like the physical products, like the different cans of beans and stuff that they wanted to put out into the market and stuff. And it's only then with the software that it's then become much more like what it is today, which is just fascinating to then kind of see that go full circle and then the kind of the software people taking that stuff back into these more traditional industries. But no matter how traditional you are or aren't, like it's not like you can just walk up to someone in a team or a company that's potentially struggling with innovation and just sort of like point at them and say like, innovate. How can you, aside from making a little startup, which obviously is one thing, but like are there ways or frameworks that you can use to develop more of an innovation culture within maybe a more established company like not as much as we would have done with starting up an entirely new spin out but like at least to get something along or something moving within a a bigger company that's maybe struggling with innovation absolutely and uh you know there are technologies but then there's just old-fashioned ways of doing things you know you you said it yourself earlier when you talked about domain experts jason at the end of the day innovation is about problem solving right it really is discovering a problem that matters, right? And is there a problem associated somewhere that is, whether it's a latent pain or a, or a specific uh, vocalized one that says, here's the issue, right? And the closer you, the more time you spend in what people call discovery today, whether it's customer discovery, product discovery, whatever it is, the more time you spend understanding the as-is situation. What does a customer do today? And this is where I love jobs to be done theory because it goes right to that idea of, you know, whether you call it jobs to be done or not, what is a day in the life of that customer? What do they do, right? And so when you're trying to say, well, what's that next thing that we can bring out as an innovative part of our product? It starts with understanding what your customer does with your existing product today. What are the areas of friction? What are the barriers for them getting more productivity, more benefit, getting their their job done better? I mean, particularly as a software developer, we've all been in that situation where, you know, we ask a customer for, you know, well, what would you like to see in the product? And they go, I'd like to put that blue dot in the upper right-hand corner. And you go, oh, yeah. And then you go back and say, oh, yeah, we need the blue dot in the right corner. But, you know, you've got a product management 101. What are you trying to accomplish? What is the problem that is there? Why is that a problem for you? What would be the benefit if we were to move that blue dot in the right-hand corner? What if we solved it this way? Does that also solve it? 
that's the basis, right? Yeah. And certainly we have, there's great generations of new tools out there, scouting tools, trending tools that, you know, could do all the analytics and bring more data into that. There's going to be there's all the AI tools that everyone's hair's on fire about, right? And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's going to get better at amassing the information more efficiently. But at the end of the day, it starts with what is that problem? What is the pain? And is that, you know, and how do we solve that pain to provide a benefit to the customer? So obviously, as a product person myself, I agree with everything you just said there. But I guess some people, when they talk about innovation, I mean, what you've just said there is all about effectively innovating on novel solutions to problems and trying to work out the most important problems to solve and the ways that you can improve your product that way. But a lot of people sit there thinking that innovation really means technological innovation. So as you just called out, like putting AI in there or a couple of years ago, adding a blockchain or whatever it is that you need to do to kind of technologically differentiate. And of course, technology differentiation is important, but sounds like you're not really talking about that when you're talking about innovation. You're really talking about finding new ways to solve problems that maybe you aren't solving yet or new maybe potentially ways to maybe reposition or kind of target a different segment or something like that. So is that the kind of innovation you're talking about? Do you feel that that's more important than the idea of, for example, we've got to put some cool new tech in? Hey, look, I'm a product guy, so I do love, you know, I, I do love the whiz bang and I am a, I am a fool <laughs> for technology and, and, and buzzwords. But I also, I also realize that the, they, they stop far short of providing material value and many times don't provide essential business value. They can be exciting and fun to talk about, but, you know, if it doesn't move the needle in terms of the business, so what? Yeah. I do think what is exciting about innovation today that was not recognized years ago is, and I agree with you, we put innovation strictly in a product bucket and a technology orientation. And I think what's exciting about innovation today is it doesn't have to be that. What's really great is we're seeing new business models all the time emerge, and that in itself is innovation. Yeah. We're seeing new pricing models emerge, and pricing innovation is innovation, right? Yeah. We're seeing all types of innovation in different parts. You know, we have a number of our customers where they are all about sustainability, and their innovation is sustainability, right? That they are equating those two terms. And so sustainability for them is innovation, right? So it doesn't have to be bounded by product and technology to be innovation. However, the process that we've all learned in this problem solution, whether again, whether it's incremental or disruptive, it's the same job to be done. It's the same process. Those roles exist, whether we call them product managers or category brand managers or whatever it is. Somebody has to do that job, right? Those decisions still need to be made. Risks still have to be laid out and mitigated. And it's the same thing. It may change from industry to industry a little bit in terms of nomenclature. It's the same stuff. But I do think that this broader thinking around innovation, it should be, for me, it's exciting. You can take the same product, the same product and say, I can create a whole new market to a different segment with different pricing, with a different business model, and I'm not changing my product at all. It's great. Yeah, that sounds a lot like some of the stuff that April Dunford talks about in her positioning work as well around this idea that, you know, like a database can be this or it can be that depending on who you pitch at. And of course, that can also then start to 
inform your development directions as well maybe some of the features that you might put in there but again i completely agree this idea that the only way to innovate is just popping cool new shiny stuff on i mean sure i'll put cool new stuff on if i feel the need but like you shouldn't start with the cool stuff right there's got to be a more holistic view of it so completely agree with that but there is an old cliched saying and you kind of touched on this a little bit yourself before that if you don't disrupt yourself you're going to be disrupted and this talks to some of the things that we mentioned around blockbuster and kodak and their high profile failures in the face of disruption and the fact that in kodak's example like they already had digital cameras in a warehouse somewhere like indiana jones at the back of the store or something like that and <laughs> they could have got them out whenever they wanted i mean i'm sure that's an oversimplification but that's the that's the kind of cliche that people trot out like they had the cameras and they didn't bring them out in time and there because they wanted to preserve what they had and you know with the inevitable and and well-known results but you've worked at a bunch of different companies i think you said over a dozen startups you've launched 100 plus products do you have any personal examples of a time that maybe you didn't innovate where you sat on your hands and maybe got outmaneuvered in the market or by your competitors can i get outmaneuvered you know, I, I can think of things that have not. It, yes, absolutely. You know, <laughs> it, 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 I think it happens to everybody. Well, I'll, I'll go back to my very first product management job. We talked about the robotics company. Now, even in those days, there was the first generation of robots was by a company called Unimate or Unimation. If I, I'm, I'm, I'm testing my memory here, Jason. <laughs> But anyways, Unimate was bought by a company called Westinghouse, Westinghouse Electric in the day. It was a startup, I think, in New England. And they were pneumatic-based, air-based robots, right? So that was for safety. And you think about that like with your dentist. You know, you don't want electricity going in your mouth. And stuff like that. So they had the same kind of idea. Well, you know, we, we want to have safety. The second generation was all gear-based. It was all mechanical-driven, you know? And I was in that generation at the company I was at. It was called American Robot. It was later renamed Simplex Technology. It was at, by the way, it was not only a robotics company, it was an AI company. Imagine that in 1986. <laughs> and, and so we, it was really cool. But one of the things about gear-based technology is, as you, we know, gears fatigue. And so when you're doing windshield placement in your automobile at Ford and you're on the hundred thousandth car and it has to go right in the windshield. Sometimes it goes right beyond the windshield and into the seat, right? And so uh, there was some service issues and mechanic, you know, you had, you had a lot of services involved with these products to make sure that they could be tuned and the belts and everything like that. Well what what came along was the next generation, even while I was still there. So we were we had surpassed pneumatic on the gear and then it was servo based, right? So everything was servo based. So you had pick and place accuracy. And then robots could be very distinct about where they buy. And you didn't have the fatigue and everything. And we got, you know, we had so much investment at American Robot in GearBase that it was very hard for us to transition into that next generation. And then we also went with the, you know, kind of classic early stage entrepreneurs. We had every range of six axis. You could move it any way you wanted. It could, you know, reach <laughs> for the sky and jump over the moon. Well, what people really wanted was just like two axis. Yeah. It could go up and down and go this way. That was good enough. That solved the problem. So servo-based, two-axis, was also cheaper. So it was cheaper, more reliable, and we missed it. We missed the whole thing. And so what did we do? The reason we changed the name of the company, by the way, was 
we got blown out of the robotics business by those server-based people. And we had to go into a services, AI, technology, computer-integrated manufacturing business because we lost. We got our, we got our hat handed to us. Well, that's a cautionary tale. And I think there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of parallels there for other companies, like with even software companies, right? Like some of the things that you've said there, I can think of like with regards to getting stuff out quicker, you know, solving the right problems, making sure that you're not over-egging the cake, you know, all of these things where I think you could argue quite a lot of companies are still making those mistakes in software products to this day. So hopefully people listening to this will be maybe slightly encouraged to move a little bit more towards not trying to throw the kitchen sink into the solution and making sure that they've got a tight solution and getting out there as quickly as possible so people can start reaping the benefit and and hopefully then, you know, moving forward with confidence. But speaking of moving forward with confidence, where can people find you after this if they want to talk about Sofian or find out more about innovation management or see if you've learned how to play the guitar yet? <laughs> I've not learned how to play the guitar. I, I really appreciate that factoid, by the way. <laughs> so that you can find me on LinkedIn and you can just uh, search under Greg and last name is C-O-T-I-C-C-H-I-A. If you want to go to Sofian, that's S-O-P-H-E-O-N.com, Sofion.com. You can find me there and you can connect with me through uh, LinkedIn on the About page from, uh, from Sofion as well. And certainly, I would love to connect with people. Happy to always uh, connect and talk about products and product management and innovation. Well, there you go. That sounds like a fair offer. So I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes, spellings and all. Hopefully get a few people heading in your direction. Thank you. Well, that's been a great chat. So obviously really glad you could spend some time to talk about some innovative ideas. Obviously, you and I will stay in touch. But as for now, thanks for taking the time. Jason, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.